Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Decouple Podcast, where we explore the science and technologies that can decouple human well-being from its ecological impacts, and the politics that can make decoupling possible. Welcome back to Decouple. Today, I'm joined by Emmett Penny, and we're going to be discussing his article in The Bellows called Why We Need a Nuclear New Deal, Not a Green New Deal, which was just published September 25th of this year. I'm very interested in hearing Emmett's position, especially because there are plenty of visions of what a 100% renewables energy transition looks like. Take Mark Z. Jacobson's roadmaps, for example. But I've not seen any clearly articulated visions of a nuclear-driven energy transition. And rather than just running off the numbers of reactors required, Emmett dives deeper into the underlying rationale and pragmatics of the why and how of a nuclear new deal. Emmett, welcome to Decouple. Hey, thanks. It's great to be here. So Emmett, I, I've decided to try out this new format in my last couple episodes um, with my podcast introductions where I am mimicking uh, Robert Bryce and having my guests introduce themselves. So oh, I, want okay. to, I want you to just imagine that we've just met at a dinner party and uh, tell me who you are and, and what you're all about. Oh, God. Okay. Um, yeah. So, well, as the listenership already knows, my name is Emmett Penny. I co-authored a piece with Adrian Calderon um, on why we need a nuclear new deal. And I guess I could say that, um, let me put it this way. I am a dual liberal arts degree holder that wandered into like uh, I'm trying to understand industrial policy and how the economy works and whatever. Um, after watching the Obama administration pretty much do nothing to help working class people. Um, and I was disabused of, I think, some of the more uh, quote unquote American way, work your way up, uh, essentially propaganda. I had heard for most of my life by that experience. And I tried my hand in the radical world, found that wanting for an actual working class politics. And then I got interested in things like actual industries. And that's sort of where I arrived at nuclear. That was way more interesting than I ever could have done. Um, but I will just say that um, your bio does says you're a writer and a researcher. You've appeared in Paste Magazine, The Bellows, Popula, Invisible Oranges, Post Trash. And elsewhere, and I do want to give you a chance to pump your podcast, or maybe I'll just do it for you for now, which is the Exhaust Podcast. Um, have a look for it around. It's it's on all the uh, major podcasts. Yeah, it's on Spotify platforms. and, um, of course, on Apple. And it is uh, a podcast about why nothing feels possible. <laughs> okay, well, let's let's talk about why a nuclear new deal uh, um, hopefully is possible, and at least it's why it's desirable. Um, so, Emmett, can we can we start off here because? You know, the Green New Deal, it's become a real catchphrase. Um, you know, in prepping for this interview, I, I realized that I was quite foggy on, you know, the original New Deal um, mm -hmm. and its, you know, its impact on, on uh, U.S. society and politics. Um, you know, that's it's a big, big question, and I don't want to jump too deep into it. But can you give us like a brief summary backgrounder on the New Deal and what it, what it is about it that makes it a useful sort of political rallying cry for, for this idea of an energy transition? Yeah, so if we go back to the Great Depression, it's important to see it as a global catastrophe that really cast a lot of doubt on the capitalist system. Now, in the late 19th century, we'd seen a lot of industrial gear ups. This is the age of the robber barons, the Gilded Age in America, et cetera, et cetera. And that crisis was so substantial and setting the world back, that it created the opening for possible alternatives to capital. Now, the October Revolution had happened in 1917, um, and so we already have a communist alternative, and then we suddenly start to see a fascist alternative on the rise. Well, the United States finds itself in a situation after a very bitter experience in World War I, um, trying to figure out how to handle a global crisis and uh, to not succumb to what it sees as the twin paths of uh, destruction, which are socialism and fascism. And part of how it decides to do that is by creating a new deal, which was actually not created by the Roosevelt 
administration. That phrase, anyway, it came from somebody else and was very different than what that guy ended up proposing, far less radical. And the reason why uh, Americans, and especially social Democrats or those on the left in general, point to it is because it brought us things like the TVA, which um, as our- The Tennessee Valley Authority, is that- Yeah, Tennessee Valley Authority, um, which modernized a substantial portion of the South. um, And because the experience of interaction with the federal government was almost nothing up until the New Deal. That's how radically it changed. Here's a great little story about how different life was before the New Deal um, and, you know, the, what bails it out eventually, the gear up to World War II, is that the day after Pearl Harbor, FDR has to go give a speech to the Senate, right? This is in 1940. It's about after eight years of New Deal attempts, and we still don't really have a military for all sorts of reasons. And... So they have to drive him to the Senate. Well, the only armored car they have um, is, uh, oh my God, what's that? um, I'm totally blanking on his name. He's like a mafioso from Chicago. Anyway, the FBI stole his car (laughs) and that's what they (laughs) drove the president to the Senate with, right? Um, because that's all they had on offer. Uh, and also like there was no social security. Um, the WPA employed tons of people after a disastrous 10 years of WPA, sorry. So the works progress administration, um, which employed millions of people and gave them jobs and, you know, created programs in the arts and things like that. I mean, it really reshaped American life and there were all sorts of compromises based baked into it, right? Because we had sort of a fractured left, especially after the peace pact between the USSR Mm. and Nazi Germany, which did a lot to damage communist credibility um, Mm. in the American scene. We also had a red scare that was dividing labor. We also had a fight between sort of like uh, more artisanal like unions guys and then like general manufacturing guys. This was the split between the... um, uh, the CIO um, and the AFL, the American Federation of Labor. And then we had Capital, which was sort of on the hook and really suffering and needed to really justify itself. And then we had the state. And these three groups had to figure out how to get together um, and make it happen. Now, a lot of workers got some union rights, a lot got shafted. Capital didn't get everything it wanted, and the government didn't get everything it wanted, but it did, especially after Europe for World War II, pull America back from the brink of what was a very bitter experience of 10 years. And the fears of an incipient fascism were very real. When we look at people like Father Coughlin um, or Huey Long, um, and of course, I've already mentioned the Red Scare. So America really needed its own alternative. It needed to demonstrate that it could provide a dignified life and create um, a healthy, as far as the state and capital thought, relationship with labor, especially in distinction to fascism. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it sounds like the, the context in which we find ourselves discussing, you know, a Green New Deal is in some ways similar in terms of the extreme sort of income inequality um, that has come to sort of dominate the scene as sort of a new gilded age. But the, the climate angle seems to be throwing a sort of a new new angle to this. And I guess that's why they're throwing a green in front of in front of this proposition for a yeah. Green New Deal. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's like, look, that was a crisis. This was a crisis. Uh, let's just rinse, repeat in some way. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important that I sort of lay out the international concerns like I did and then the class uh, and political problems at home. Yeah. Uh, and that's what gave rise to the New Deal. Now, it was really convenient for the Democrats, right? Because they could sort of point to World War I and everything that happened in the 20s and say, you know what, this is a Republican problem. We're going to solve this in a new way. There was the general modernist moment of thinking that we could really remake people and remake the state in a new image. That's uh, The New Deal really comes out of that ideology. Um, and importantly for the Democrats, there are all sorts of um, ethnic minorities from Europe Uh, that have poured in and work in unions and are looking forward 
to, uh, if they can be promised certain things, vote Democratic. Mm. And so that's how the Democrats scoop up labor in the now densely populated urban sectors. That's now, really in the intervening decades, that's all changed, right? So part of what's, you know, obviously Adrian and I call upon the New Deal as a reference to what could be made good uh, in such a wrecked society right now. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it's wrong to point to successes of the past. However, I think it is important to understand uh, what's different about now and that labor and working class people don't actually have yet a rightful place within either party. Yeah, this this quote that I saw when I was just looking in, a little bit into the original uh, New Deal, it was from the Kennedy dynasty. I'm not sure which Kennedy this was, but he was basically saying, you know, um, if he was given the choice to hand away half his fortune so he could keep the other half, he'd be quite happy. And I think that really illustrates sort of that the the people who'd benefited from the Gilded Age, this kind of uh, you know, these ultra wealthy people, they felt sufficiently threatened by kind of the political alternatives, as you're mentioning, that were on the on the table, that they were able to or willing to make these kind of concessions. And that just seems so far from our current realities, shall we say, where, where labor is, is just very disorganized and, and um, you know, has really been sort of bled dry in the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, I mean, they've been on the back feet. You know, for really 40, long 50 time. years. <laughs> yeah, 2020, throw, it's 2020 yeah, now, right? <laughs> yeah. Throw in, you know, the Cold War, a couple red scares, um, you know, the whole Reagan era. Uh, I mean, we live in the house that get Barry Goldwater built, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Bill Clinton was essentially Barry Goldwater. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, I think that, that that's how it's changed. And we've also offshored a lot of stuff, which was really convenient. Like the whole mergers and acquisitions thing, the whole offshoring stuff wasn't just like how do we continue to make profits it was a way to sell off the means of production to further cripple labor interesting interesting okay let's um that's great we've got an excellent backgrounder there i think um let's jump a little bit more directly into the piece that you wrote in bellows um so you actually start off with an assessment of joe biden's it's a mouthful but it's a plan to build a modern sustainable infrastructure and an equitable clean energy future yeah. Got to take a breath after saying that. But um, is Joe the new Roosevelt? <laughs> what, what is he promising? And and what do, what do you think his vision for an energy transition looks like? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I've seen some people try to argue this. And I wrote a thing about it on Medium. First of all, Roosevelt was an incredibly contentious figure when he was around. Understandably, it was a crisis. There were a lot of high demands. There were a lot of people who were upset with how things played out. Um, so he wasn't necessarily the sort of like neutral technocrat people saw him as. I don't think he was particularly ideological either. So maybe in that way, he has something in common with Joe Biden, who seems to be a total tabula rasa, except for credit card companies um, and, you know, fracking companies. But look, you go through that document that he's laid out where he's like, here's my plan for the climate. And it looks like he had a bunch of staffers dump all of their ideas into uh, a Google doc and then bold the parts that they think the press are going to like. It's not a very coherent plan. Um, it's ambitious in a way that would require um, a mobilization that I have not seen from his campaign or any of the like Goldman Sachs guys he has in his cabinet. I mean, let me put it this way. Do you think that a guy is going to pull off like, you know, massive infrastructure spending and all of these things when he is essentially months ago wound down any door-to-door canvassing operations for his own bid for the presidency? I personally don't think so. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So his idea seems to be... Um, what Adrian and I call uh, smashing that goddamn innovate button. Smashing what, sorry? The, what button? The goddamn innovate button. Ah, uh, okay, okay, yeah. You know, so it's like, okay, we're going to commercialize this. We're going to innovate that. Nobody really tells you what that's going to do. They're going to create a new department in, in the, the DOE, which uh, no one's sure if is needed or they want it there. Some say yes, some say no. It's kind of unclear what exactly its role would be. Um, they want to solve the price problem of nuclear by investing in all sorts of, you know, uh, small modular new stuff. Um, 
and they have a big plan for renewables. Uh, they also want to solve some social issues with it, you know, uh, redistribute wealth, especially on race lines. Um, it's sort of like a Swiss army plan mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, with no coherency of like how it's going to be executed. And, and is there any sort of, I mean, these are still some pretty, um, some bold, uh, at least on paper ideas. Um, I'm guessing you're not feeling that there's much hope that uh, much of that agenda is going to be carried forward in terms of the wealth distribution or the other sort of social goals. I mean, he won't. Uh... No, I mean, they like uh, one of the phrases that they put in there a lot. I really liked it. I thought it was actually kind of charming is they say, OK, we're going to have bold, good union jobs like over and over again. That's in the doc. But you just need to rewind back to 2007 when Biden and Obama are saying they're going to do things like pass card check for unions in the United States and stuff like that. And they just never do it once they have a supermajority in the House and the Senate. And what's card card check, sorry? So card check would essentially make it easier. Just the – I don't want to like spend a long time walking about it. It would make it easier for people to form a union at their workplace. Okay, yeah. You know, they could more democratically do it, you know. Um, And they just didn't pass any of that stuff despite having a run on it. Mm-hmm. So you were mentioning, um, you know, that that Biden's plan is is very renewables heavy. They do talk a little bit about nuclear, but um, they're pretty into the um, the stuff that isn't really in existence yet, and pinning their hopes that somehow something that doesn't exist yet will have all of the sort of fantasies they can attach to it. Um, yeah, and-, and they may as well have a section called like "Why I'm Going to Give Elon Musk like three billion dollars or something like that," you know. Or fusion, man. Why not just jump right to fusion? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, th- this was something that um, really depressed me about uh, Bernie Sanders. Was was thinking, wow, I love this guy on so many levels. He's been so consistent over the years. He's such he's got such a great record. But unfortunately, part of his consistency was a stubborn sort of anti nuclearism. And you know, when I looked at his climate and energy plan, it just looked like an absolute disaster in terms of you know, being likely to deliver what we're seeing in California recently, blackouts, expensive electricity, policies that favor sort of virtue signaling by rich people who can put solar panels on the roofs and get subsidized to do it by everybody else. Yeah. You know, and the, the political blowback, you know, if, I mean, Bernie, or in this case, if Biden gets elected and, and were to be able to put into place all of the things he wanted in his plan is that it would be a, you know, just a complete and utter failure on on basically every metric in terms of decarbonization, but also these other things like, you know, the price of electricity and instability of the grid. And, you know, I think we talk a lot about, you know, how Democrats have sort of seeded the ground that that and fertilized the ground that grew the Trump pumpkin. Um, but, you know, that this would really be disastrous uh, in terms of you know what that would do to people's concern about climate if we were to you know throw a trillion dollars into windmills and solar panels and, and get sort of what California is getting. Um, it would be, you know, I think a real political disaster for the progressives and the left. I don't know if you're you're seeing that. Yeah. Oh, it would be a nightmare. I mean, if your plan sucks and you implement your plan, then reality sucks. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good succinct way to put what I just said. You know, like that's the, that's the problem. Um, I mean, as your listeners know, I mean, they've heard, uh, I assume that you're all dedicated fans and have listened to the wonderful episode with my former colleague, uh, Mark Nelson, um, talk about how like uh, a lot of the stuff is just wishing upon a star in terms of new nuclear. Um, and you know, as, um, uh, the episode you did before Mirtos um, with uh, Angwin, I think her name is. Uh, Meredith Angwin, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Was excellent in explaining what renewables do to the grid. I mean, a lot of this stuff comes out of the new left in the 60s, which um, I'm going to really have to bracket a lot of personal feelings about this to talk about it in a sober way. Um, <laughs> and I'll say this is that it, wasn't particularly attached to reality in a lot of ways. It wasn't a particularly thoughtful political movement. um, And it was helmed by people who didn't need to win, which is always a bad sign. Hmm. And if anybody wants to know who I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of people like Emery Levin. um, I'm thinking of the Weather Underground. Um, All of these people who, as soon as they were done being underground, decided to walk into tenure positions at major universities across the country. Mm-hmm. You know, um, such was the serious of their commitments. Um, I've met Mark Rudd several times. He finked on all his friends to the FBI, um, you know. Uh, and so with their sort of like 
genteel upbringing came a genteel relationship with heavy manufacturing. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And their idea was, well, we can just harmonize with Mother Earth as we tune in and drop out. <laughs> and uh, it'll all be hunky-dory. Um, unfortunately, it just doesn't work like that. You know, I really wish there was more to say, except that it doesn't work. It's sort of um, a romantic delusion often uh, held um, by those who've been comforted by, you know, a middle class like my life or an upper middle class life. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and frankly, a lot of it has to do now with incredibly successful propaganda from the renewables industry. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I have to admit, They've done a remarkable job of that. I don't think anybody is, except for like the real shills. I think most people um, aren't stupid about supporting renewables. I think that they just see it and they say, you want to know what? That looks like harmony with nature to me. Mm -hmm. And given everything that we're facing, I can't really blame them for that. Yeah. You know, and the nuclear industry has been under a huge assault. You know, um, sort of the section that my co-author was in charge of. So, uh, the general case for nuclear in our piece, uh, I thought Adrian did a great job of bringing it back to fears of nuclear annihilation in the Cold War, despite the fact that these are two different technologies. Um, I mean, that, those are those are very real and potent fears that you know not to yes. be too self not to be too self referential, but um, going back to the podcast I did with uh, the episode I did with uh, James Conka on um, on nuclear weapons and, and sort of solutions to that. Um, mega megatons to megawatts and whatnot. Um, you know, we were recording that just in the aftermath of the um, God, I'm blanking here. The bomb in Lebanon. Uh, oh Lebanon. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is terrible. I thought I was a geography buff here. Uh, the Beirut, <laughs> the Beirut uh, fertilizer bomb, essentially, right? You uh -huh. know, which which produced that like that mushroom cloud. It, you know, it looked in terms of a kind of pop culture thing as as if it was a nuclear explosion. But you know, James was was we were talking about that and comparing that to the, you know, the destruction wreaked by a, you know, moderately powered thermonuclear weapon now. And it's like, you know, most of Lebanon would have been completely obliterated. Like these, these, I really mm -hmm. want to, you know, give justice to the reality of those fears that people are living under that we still do live under, but, you know, I think our generation is not very conscious of it. I mean, it would take, I think an epic mistake of some kind, which hopefully the control systems in place wouldn't allow or Trump, you know, just going mental in the final days in the White House, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, that that fear, you know, it, it's inappropriately attached to nuclear energy, but the, the root of it is, is, I think it's the most potent thing in the world or the most potent source of fear in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, especially if we look at the Cold War era, I think it's really hard for people to who didn't grow up in it to sort of put themselves back in that state of mind where you're literally yeah. like, Oh my God, it's one minute to midnight. <laughs> like the crisis. Yeah. 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 All this stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's truly terrifying, but again, it has nothing to do with the civilian technology that mm -hmm. produces energy, you know? Yeah. And in which case is often the antidote to the actual weapons themselves in terms of being able to reprocess the plutonium or the, the enriched uranium into mm -hmm. actually something that's a benefit to humanity. Like they really are, you know, like a sword and a plowshare. They really are dramatically different applications of the technology. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and I don't I don't think one would abandon the uh, the Bronze Age to go back to, to rocks. But anyway, we'll leave that aside. So, um, you know, one of the critiques of the Green New Deal um, and, and I think of a lot of the sort of modern attempts at the energy transition so far, um, the more muted attempts are that they rely a lot on subsidies and incentives rather than, you know, what I think the New Deal did, which was relying more on economic planning in the form of like public direct financing or making, you know, making public companies to carry out, um, you know, a social or economic mission that was thought to be important to the country. Um, you know, briefly, what are your thoughts on this in terms of the Biden plan or the Green New Deal itself? Uh, I think it's profoundly interesting um, in that it seems like, you know, what people call neoliberalism, whatever that's going to mean, but it definitely does not mean central planning, mm -hmm. um, has become hegemonic. Um, it's also interesting to me that AOC's uh, team allegedly um, has really been taking a look at Arthur Herman's book, uh, Freedom's Forge, which is about how business helped in the gear up to World War II, which was, is probably one of the best pieces of like World War II era business propaganda I've ever read. It's really good. I think people should read it. Um, its biases are 
palpable, I will say. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it speaks to the Green New Deal's uh, willingness to and sort of the default mode of saying, well, we're really going to need to bring in all sorts of capital investors to do this or what have you. We can't actually plan this ourselves. And like, look, in some ways, they're not totally wrong about that, right? Like we have to take a look at what exists and who's capable of doing what. That's sort of the story of the Arthur Herman book. Like the federal government was for all sorts of reasons incapable of actually running its own gear up to World War II. It had to come up with a cozy relationship with business in order to pull that off. Now, I'm sure they're taking a look around at what's actually possible in terms of American manufacturing and stuff like that and instigating and implementing an industrial policy that would allow us to do long-term heavier projects like a nuclear new deal, for example. And they're like, well, that dog don't hunt. Like no one's going to vote for that. Or I just don't even believe that it's possible to do that. Or that just seems too hard. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, um, so in some ways I can be sympathetic to that. However, I do think that it does turn the sort of new socialist dream that seems to have taken place and perhaps swiftly ended this year um, into new light. And that you have to say, like, what type of a dream is this? It is certainly not one of plenty. It is certainly not one of centralization because they seem to make the equation that centralization Um, is antithetical to democratization, which is a huge mistake, in my opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And I think it shows that they're not too different than some of the octogenarians we have (laughs) shuffling around the halls of our highest offices. Yeah. So the the Biden plan, the Green New Deal... um, I'm not sure about the Biden plan, to be honest, but many within the the movement that, that are calling for this kind of an energy transition are basing that on um, the idea of uh, 100% renewables grids. I referenced earlier, Mark C. Jacobson's roadmap, mm-hmm. wind, water, solar. Um, you know, I think people who've listened to this program are, are pretty aware. Um, and I've, I've tried to draw attention to a lot of the, um, the issues um, with uh, so-called, or I, I guess just, you know, renewable energy is such a big basket, right? But with variable, weather-dependent, intermittent, non-dispatchable sources of energy. Um, just briefly, you know, why do you believe that can't form the backbone of, a, of an energy transition away from fossil fuels to deal with climate change? Yeah, so, the, you know, one of the things that we walk through in, in the piece is that, um, uh, as Meredith Angwin points out in your in, two episodes previous to this, I think. Um, it it turns, we had it in the original, one of the original drafts, Adrian had this great line for what it does to the grid in that it turns it into an egregious Rube Goldberg machine, uh, which I thought was great. I totally understand why Edwin, our editor, cut it, but I thought it was really wonderful. Um, so I'm glad that I can give that line its shining moment now. Props to you, Adrian. That was really good. Um, because there are going to be gra- gaps in what it can provide. Right. And so that means you need things to fill that gap. Well, what's going to fill that gap? It's probably going to be fossil fuels because they're more dependable. And all these people are like anti-nuclear, like Kate Aronoff. I think she's over at the New Republic. She has like a couple books out from Verso. Uh, Thea Riafrancos um, is another one. Uh, the woman who um, worked on Bernie's plan. She's a Roosevelt Institute fellow. I think they're all anti-nuclear. Mm-hmm. So they really think this is going to work. And I don't think it's going to work for the reason I just said. And because I think one of the most startling things that we have in the piece is the land use graphic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Where we say, okay, so if we're going to totally decarbonize the grid with nuclear, the amount of nuclear plants that's going to take would fill a little bit more or around the size of the city of Chicago. Yeah. To do it with solar or wind is 80 to 85% of the size of Ohio. And that's not counting battery storage, by the way. The state of Ohio. Okay. Wow. Yeah, the state yeah. of Ohio. Yeah. So, again, not counting battery storage. So, you have to wonder how much wildlife is going to be hurt to do that? How many resources it needs to be mined to do that? You know, you can just start doing, like in your head, the basic. Arithmetic. Mm-hmm. You could just do orders of magnitude, like 10,000 this, million of that, whatever. 
uh, to figure that out. And it's not going to work. Yeah. It's too much. It's too much yeah. stuff. I mean, I thought I had recently was, um, you know, when, when you have, when you see these, um, life cycle emissions figures for the various energy sources and, you know, nuclear is at the bottom of around 12, uh, grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. Wind is, you know, 11, 12, 13, depending on you know, onshore, offshore, solar is 44, natural gas is almost 500 coal is 900 to a thousand, right? You, you see these numbers, which are useful. Um, but in the accounting of life cycle emissions for intermittent sources like wind and solar, the the emissions from the backup sources that would make them viable um, on the grid are not accounted for. And um, it kind of reminds me of the way that we look at um, natural gas emissions kind of only at the smokestack without considering fugitive emissions mm -hmm. from the wellhead to the piping to your leaky appliance in your house, right? And it's just, it's not an honest factoring. And when you look at those, and I've seen some studies that have, that have looked at, okay, renewables plus their, their backup, what does that look like? And it sits usually around, you know, 200 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. And that's, you know, almost 10 times more than nuclear. And yeah. it's just, it's not compatible with zero net zero emissions or deep decarbonization, right? Like you're hitting these mid range levels. And then, you know, the, the other thing is, you know, Mark Z. Jacobson's big plan, um, it actually calls for very little storage at all and just wants to use, you know, um, hydro dams as, as a kind of battery or as a backup to, to fill in the gaps. But, um, you know, he sued the, uh, the researchers that pointed out to him that his plan, which was actually not to dam any new rivers, but just to put, I think, around like 10 or 20 times the numbers of, of turbines into each dam for the water discharges. And they pointed out, hey, if you actually were to use this to fill in gaps, um, you would be releasing, you know, five to 10 times the maximum flood levels ever seen on the Colorado River. And that would wipe Jeez. out, I don't know the geography, but I mean, that would wipe out whatever cities are, are kind of down, wow. down from there, right? If you think of a hundred year flood, it would have been like five to 10 times larger every time that the wind and the sun died down enough that you needed to rapidly ramp up and fill in the grid. So, you know, when I, when I look at these plans, they're just, I mean, I'm just not sure who's doing them. And, and you like, you give an engine, like engineers are problem solvers, right? And I kind of feel a lot of this stuff, it's like, you know, you give someone an impossible problem and they'll spend forever on the chalkboard and sort of figure something out that works mm -hmm. in an imaginary universe. But yeah, it's, you know, it's I think, you know, I think a lot of it has to do with um, some of the cultural and class stuff I brought before. I mean, nuclear's really got its work cut out for it, right? Because what nuclear requires is ideologically out of vogue, right? Which is central planning. That's yeah. what we would need to do. That's what we advocate for. That public interest governance is out of vogue. That is not how we think about running our country anymore. We don't even ask for obedience so much as compliance, right? If I want to make a distinction there, it's going to be this, right? Obedience is just, I say this, then you go do it, right? Compliance is we create a structure of rules and ways of being that make it so that you have no other option but to be this way. Hmm. That's how we tend to think of what it is to govern. Well, something like nuclear is not going to fit into that environment because it is too specific and too big in terms of aspiration, uh, especially, uh, yeah, it's just too big an aspiration uh, to do that. So there's an ideological fight there, you know. Um, and then, you know, people are worried about centralization, and people just want to feel like they can return to an Eden. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think people really want that. You know, that sentimentality is dug in like a tick on the left. I've seen it. And I'm totally sympathetic for it. Yeah. Know, sympathetic to it. I get it. Like, it's rough out here. It would be nice to go back. I don't think the Cold War was necessarily the like Keynesian Valhalla that people tend to think it is. Uh, but certain things have gotten so much worse since then that I can't fault them for feeling that way. Mm -hmm. And there's also been, you know, the nuclear industry, I think Mark Nelson put it to me like this and that some of these guys, I hope he doesn't get mad at me for saying this, uh, but all they thought they had to do was run the plants perfectly, which yeah. is what they do. Um, unfortunately, that's not the fight they were in. They were in this whole other fight at the same time which is just basically advocating for the technology because I don't think people are anti-nuclear because they're dumb or whatever. 
I mean, I sound mad because I am mad that certain things that I think are fundamentally wrong and demonstrably so are hegemonic right now. But I'm not like pissed off at people for thinking that way. Because what other conclusion would you come to if you were walking around in the world? Unless you had a few very niche experiences in your life. How do you get to like where you and I are having this conversation? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. And so I think that part of there, part of it is just like awareness. Um, and part of it is also ideological. Mm-hmm. Which is, um, you know, an interesting uh, place to kind of step off from in terms of like your guys article, which is a call for a nuclear new deal. And while you guys don't say, you know, there's this kind of hundred percent thing that goes around and, and, you know, in terms of hundred percent renewables, you guys aren't explicitly calling for hundred percent nuclear. And I think that would probably be pretty foolish since, you know, I think people that are have this point of view in terms of where energy systems should, should be going are not against dispatchable forms of um, non-combustion related renewables. Like you have to throw in all these words to say exactly specifically what you mean, because <laughs> yeah. renewables as a category is just, it's such so many dissimilar um, mm. sources that have such, you know, different profiles, but things like hydro and geothermal are dispatchable, low carbon renewable sources that I think you know, you and I would be very happy to see involved in an, in an energy system, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, renewables is whatever the marketing department says it is. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, but it was really interesting just researching for my last show with um, Mirto Tripathi on, on uh, French nuclear and like looking back to the 1970s when Pierre Mesmer, um, who was the, I believe, again, I can't remember if it was the prime minister or the president or what they exactly have in France, but he uh, was the national leader in any case, um, you know, and the, the plan was named after him, the Mesmer plan, um, which built, which led to those 59 reactors being built in 15 years. But, you know, he called for 100 percent nuclear electricity and to electrify everything. And it's just it's it's like unimaginable kind of that that choice of rhetoric and language like to, to hear it now. Um, and part of me is like, well, it's, I'm just glad that it's on my radar because for me, even personally, it's kind of shifted my Overton window a little bit. I mean, again, as I was saying before, like hydro is awesome. Geothermal is awesome. It doesn't need to be hundred percent, but just that like we could even imagine that phrase or remember it is, is, is just an interesting kind of thing at the moment. Yeah. That's amazing. I mean, that's, look, these are the things that give me hope, you know, Mesmer did that. That's a thing that can happen. Yeah, yeah, it's been done. Yeah, it's been done, you know. And again, to bring it back to what we were talking about at the beginning, New Deal has all sorts of problems, right? But there was an attempt to figure out what to do about the crisis that we were in that was interested, however imperfectly, in the public good. Mm. You know, one, I did a big deep dive into the New Deal at the beginning of the year. Because I was like, man, we keep talking about this. We keep saying it, especially around um, COVID. It was like, well, why don't we just do what we did in World War II? You know, rinse, repeat. And we all get on board and we build all the masks. I mean, we make all the masks and respirators we need or what have you. And I was just like, that doesn't feel right. I don't know what's, things seem different now for all sorts of reasons. You know, it just doesn't, it didn't sit right. So I went and looked at it. And one quote, I just can't forget it. It was, it was a man in, I think Iowa, who was interviewed coming out of a welfare office in the darkest days of the Depression. And all he said to the reporter was, I just had to murder my pride. Hmm. And if you go on like our unemployment right now in Reddit, that's basically what people are saying to each other. Yeah. So whether we like it or not, whether it's ideologically fashionable or not, whether it makes enemies out of people that we thought were our friends and vice versa, we have to advocate for big public interest governance. It has to come back. Otherwise we're never getting through this. Well, and especially because as you were saying at the beginning, the the impetus for the, the new deal was, you know, to avoid fascism or communism basically on the part of the kind of, um, American political class. And nowadays it seems like they're not too um, averse to fascism. (laughs) Right. Well, Uh, I mean, I'll say this, like, I actually don't really think, I think there are plenty of right-wing governments, um, you know, that are happening right now. I'm not really convinced that any of them are fascist. They might be distasteful or anything or something like that. 
But I think, you know, fascism was also a response to communism Mm -hmm. and capitalism. This is what, this is the dark, real meaning of what it meant when Margaret Thatcher said, there is no alternative. Yeah. And there's no society, right? (laughs) Yes. That's what we're living in right now. So that's our additional challenge. There are plenty of challenges back then, but that's our additional challenge now. We've been living for decades in a world where manufacturing has been crippled, supply chains have been fragilized by incredible international horizontalization. Nobody knows how anything gets made anymore. Absolute decadence from the elites and a total retreat from public prominence and respect and functionality from things like unions. Boom. Okay. This is a great place where I wanted to jump in a little bit because I was remembering, and I don't think it's from the article, but from an earlier conversation, um, we were talking briefly and you were, you were mentioning that, um, you know, industrial policy in the U.S. Um, was so bound up in the auto industry, which has now largely yes. been offshored. Um, mm-hmm. And I think your implicit call for this nuclear new deal is, is for um, nuclear the nuclear industry, the peaceful civilian nuclear industry to replace that as the, as the auto industry essentially as the new heart of a U.S. industrial yes. economy. I didn't follow you entirely in that conversation. So can you, can you explain this to me a bit further? Yeah. So we've talked about how the gear up to World War II bails out the New Deal in all sorts of ways. It solves the employment crisis because you know, yeah. now we need uh, people to A, be in the army and B, actually make all this stuff. Um, and so, like, within a few years, like, the Works Progress Administration gets rolled up, et cetera, et cetera. So the major guys that end up uh, becoming dollar-a-year dollar dollar men is what they're called, um, these head honchos of industry that end up in the Roosevelt administration to help organize this. Why are they called dollar-a-year guys? Because that's their salary. Wow, Okay. Right. So they're all, a lot of them are CEOs um, from like GM, not Ford. Henry Ford was very, you know, resistant to any wars. Um, I'm sure his anti Semitism played a role in some of that, though eventually Ford does get on board the company. Um, But all of these companies start to uh, essentially figure out how to take what they already have in terms of capacity and make all of our implements. So we had, our troops were training with sticks and ox carts and stuff in like 1941. Really? Right? We had nothing. We were using like taped together aluminum cans to mimic mortars. And you just write tank on the side of a cow or something like that. Right? So we had nothing. So how are we going to do it? Well, the only people who really knew that stuff were these head guys in industry because firms were still vertical then. So they mostly existed within a single nation state. That's not to say there weren't international elements of it. Certainly, like some of these companies have factories in Germany and stuff like that or or what have you. But by and large, they existed in one place. Again, another difference from today. So the automotive industry is what really helps us gear up for war it builds planes it builds i think howitzers you know i think about it like this it, you know my mom grew up in detroit her dad was a world war ii vet and i'm pretty sure howitzers were made in detroit in the auto industry now i have a howitzer shell from the pacific where my dad's father fought mm-hmm. so that means that not too far from where my mother grew up and where her father worked his way up into management so that he could provide for his wife and four kids on one salary. Not too long before that, a howitzer was made that was deployed to the Pacific that was used by my dad's father. Yeah, wow. Right? And when we start looking at what the American dream is going to start to mean and what the American way of life is going to mean, there are all sorts of critiques of it as a consumer's republic and things like that. And the car features heavily in this. It is part of our self-image or was, less so now. And it's baked into the infrastructure of the country. I think it's Eisenhower that really brings about the superhighways because after World War I, he went on a parade 
that crossed the country and you realized how hard it was to get across the country. And that was unacceptable to them. So of course the automotive industry is very interested in that project as well, because it helps sell more cars, right? So this becomes how we live our lives, how suburbs happen, et cetera, et cetera. There's all these complications and conflicts around this, but this is still a part of the American self-image. So we have to imagine in the 1980s when Japan and Germany, who were allies in World War II that we defeated, start to out-compete us in the automotive industry. And eventually we accept that. And we start offshoring stuff and we start bringing factories from over there into the U.S., right? That's interesting, yeah. Yeah, so then there's another question of like what really American manufacturing means at that point. But this was essentially our dream of freedom. And it might not have been good, I don't know, but it was the one that we had, and now we don't have the material means to live it anymore. It's over. So what are we going to have? You can't just say this is a good idea, and so we should do it. There's no traction there. There are plenty of good ideas in the world. But what we do need is a decarbonized society. And what we do need is manufacturing. We need to build competency through building capability so that we can again have confidence to face tomorrow. The whole culture of pessimism that has set in since the 70s has been a part of everything that I just described. And not only there are misadventures in Vietnam, there are all sorts of other things that happen, but this is part of it. And so when we look at public interest governance, we have to say, what do we really need? We can't just say, I don't know, put a windmill on it. I've heard that's good. We have to say, what type of job is that? And what does that actually do for people? Does anyone want to live near that? Does it make the air cleaner? Does it beautify the skyline? Does it make me wake up every day happy to be in a society with my fellows? Now, you're not going to put this in the document that you draft up because what you need is an industrial policy. And I think it's a mistake to try to actually put that stuff in whatever policies you're going to come up with. But you have to have it in mind. What we're experiencing right now is an evaporation of the dignity of the citizen. And it is so staggering that I can't even believe it. And as an American, it really breaks my heart. It really does, Chris. Are you a speechwriter by any chance? (laughs) (laughs) Emmett, I'm like on my feet here. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that was was rousing for sure. so, so you were talking about how the automotive industry was the sort of life's blood and, and shaped American society so much. And then we've been talking about the um, the alternatives, I guess, in terms of, you know, a society based upon um, windmills and solar panels or, or based on, on nuclear reactors, essentially powering a country. And I think we've talked a little bit about the merits or dismerits of each of those approaches in terms of, you know, actually being able to provide decarbonization, which is one of our key goals. And then some of the other factors that go into that in terms of grid stability, um, reliability. I'm, I'm a doctor. I work in a hospital. I really don't like it when the lights go out and the ventilators turn off. Yeah. My um, sister-in-law is a nurse in an ICU. She doesn't like that either. Yeah. Yeah. So it's <laughs> something char- you guys have in common. Those it's a character who- <laughs> trait amongst those medical people. We yeah. like reliable electricity. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, beyond that, you know, and you were mentioning sort of landscape values and things like that, wildlife impacts, et cetera. Um, you know, the another big thing that's happened in terms of um, these these different um, routes forward, you know, the the wind and solar heavy one, you know, the there's this kind of appeal to nature fallacy. You know, we're being powered by the wind and the sun. That's natural. That's good. And then this complete ignoring of the um, the materials in, that are needed in terms of the steel frames to hold up the solar panels or the, you know, hundreds of tons of steel in every wind turbine. The, yeah. the, uh, or, or, the, the, or people are just like, oh, offshore is going to be great. Right. Um, but we're, we're and, and I'm like, am I we're like offshore wind? And it's just like, oh, yeah. But what about all the bunker fuel you need to replace those things? Because the ocean eats through them. Yeah, you know, yeah. like a horse in a feed bag. But also, I mean, also in terms of the 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 mining that that is a result of this, yeah. right? Where you have 10, 17 times the amount of mining that's necessary, and of course that's getting offshore, right? 
Um, and those impacts are, are largely being felt in, you know, the cobalt producing countries like Congo, where 20 or 30% of the world's cobalt is mined by children or something like that. Right. So it's just, mm-hmm. you're right. I mean, the marketing has just been so slick in terms of, you know, when you're talking at, when you were mentioning to me, like, you know, in the language you're using of, you know, which way forward do we want? Do we want one where we want something that's beautiful in our backyard? And, you know, with the, with the biases people presently have in terms of the, campaigns by you know anti-nuclear uh, environmental groups the fossil fuel industry etc like it's it, it raises people's uh the hair on the back of their necks to think about a nuclear plant you know in i their know vicinity. i know it's, you know it's, I, it's... I live next to uh you know probably 40 50 kilometers away from you know a three gigawatt plant um and i i sleep fine now i didn't used to before i dived into this topic mm-hmm. you know the more you the more you know about nuclear the less you fear it um but yeah it, it is interesting Let's yeah. let's let's shift gears a little bit um, okay. because we're talking about nuclear, we're talking about deploying it broadly as the kind of basis of a new kind of industrial policy. Um, but you know what we know in the West at least is that nuclear is costly and slow. We've been going over budget and behind schedule. In your article, you talk a little bit about the industrial policies of countries that have deployed nuclear successfully on a large basis, like France mm-hmm. and South Korea. Um, what? What are some of the ingredients that allowed them to deliver their their nuclear plants on time and on budget? Oh, man. So I think part of it is um, (laughs) Mark Nelson is really the guy that knows this, but like the back of his hand. Uh, I always feel like but a newbie whenever I start talking about this. Um, So I'll have to shed some of how self-conscious I feel about it. But I will say that uh, one of the things that we mentioned in the piece is that we've got to agree on like a single reactor type. One of the things that can really hamstring you is saying like, okay, we want this amount of plants. Like, so I think we call for like something like, I don't know, 250 plants or something like that in the piece after we did the back of the envelope math on it. And if you were to be like, yeah, we're going to have five different reactor types for each plant, like that's chaos. And also it really increases the price and how long it takes to get these things done because you have to learn how to do a bunch of different things. And they're very complicated and involved things. If you can just like stamp out the same reactor thing. As you do it, you get better and better at doing it. This is true for the Russians. This is true for South Korea, you know, and so it also gets cheaper to do. This isn't something that benefits from innovation. In fact, quite the contrary. So I'd say for me, that's something that I'm very focused on when I'm looking at these plans. And then, but in people, I think people's gut reaction is like, well, if there's not innovation, then, you know, isn't nuclear not going to be, isn't, isn't the technology of our grandfathers and it's, it's not going to be safe mm-hmm. enough, et cetera. Like, I think that's when people hear that, that innovation makes nuclear more expensive. Um, that sounds like a huge drawback, like just not just on a very superficial level. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that's a really difficult thing to combat, right? Mm-hmm. Because I would say in my mind, the fact that it's we can just do, you know, uh, some of the same technology we've been using for a while, and we know that it works, is very comforting mm-hmm, mm-hmm. because it lasts for so long, you know. And this wind and solar stuff doesn't. And it's so I have a really hard time coming up with like rebuttals to that because it's, it's so like contra- it's so contrary to how I see now yeah. ha- having become aware of this stuff, you know, that my concerns are very different because what I don't want is for there to just be this innovation fest. I don't know how much that's actually improved certain things might be one response that I'd have. And another one would be like, I'm not concerned about innovation. I'm concerned about posterity. Yeah. Yeah. I want those jobs to be there for communities. For decades. Well, and, and for climate stability, right? But Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of co- I mean, of course, that's you sort of get that with it. But I mean, in terms of making a pitch to people who need like work and want to do it, you know, that's, I mean, primarily, I guess that's who I'm thinking, you know, but yeah. And in terms of climate, like you want it around, don't you? <laughs> you like it, don't you? It's, it's um, good that it exists, that we have the means and the tools now. And I mean, yeah, I mean, something on the home front here in Canada you know, is, is learning more about our um, indigenous reactor technology, the, the CANDU, um, the heavy water reactor technology we have, which ticks so many of the boxes of what the advanced nuclear developers are chasing. You know, it's a, it's a reactor design that's capable of using um, natural uranium or using waste from um, pressurized water reactors, like, you know, that are more common throughout the world, the light water reactors, 
Um, it has so many passive safety features built into it. Um, you know, it, it got around a lot of the limitations that we had in Canadian manufacturing mm. in terms of, you know, we didn't have the tech to forge reactor vessels. So we made this pressure tube design, which is also inherently so much safer as well um, in, in how those tubes, you know, would respond to, uh, you know, an overheating event. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm not naming all of the, the advanced features of a can do, but if you were to, you know, if you were to just... If, if it didn't exist and you were to show the design now, it would it would tick so many of the boxes. People would be losing their minds over how cool yeah. it is, you know. So, yeah, uh, totally. Um, yeah, you know, I think that. I mean, I think again, this is where I think that it's important that I don't think the fight for nuclear is going to be strictly a fight that happens in like the cultural media sphere, mm-hmm. because I don't think that's the only sphere that like matters or gets things done. Obviously, when you want something built. But I do think it is vital to whatever we do because um, a lot of people just where where would they get that information? You know what I mean? If you think about all the things that led you to nuclear and finding out about it, it's always like this crazy spider's web. It's like a Borgesian maze, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so I think making some of that available and clear. This is what I really love about Isabel Bemicky. Yeah, yeah. You know, she's an incredible communicator in that way. Yeah, um, and I really admire what she's doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's a she's another decouple veteran. Uh, yeah, yeah, I loved I loved the interview with her. You know, I mean, I think it's a. <laughs> my wife jokingly calls like, you know, um, our our group chats in the in the nuclear world the boring X Men, <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, which I think is great. But what I love is that like um, uh, Isabel doesn't feel like that when you watch her stuff. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's crucial. She's legit ex woman for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> now she just needs to start an academy and, and build up an army around her. But yeah, right, totally. Um, <laughs> okay, so that aside, um, you know, let's jump into some of the pragmatic uh, the pragmatics of making a, a new nuclear deal work in the U.S. Um, given the current realities. Obviously, we're talking mm-hmm. a lot of state intervention in terms of the capital costs. Um, I think you, you talked about consolidating some of the firms. What are, what are some of the measures that would be required to, to get this uh, ambitious proposal of yours, this immodest proposal of yours up and going? Yeah. So I think, uh, well, we'd have to train people to do this stuff, you know, so part of it's an educational component to bring it in. I mean, we just don't have um, enough engineers or whatever right now to meet that need. So they're going to have to be grants and things like that. Um, we call on the National Defense Education Act of 1958 uh, because the federal government stepped in to create real um, incentives in educational and, and this is because they were they were terrified of Sputnik, basically? Or what yeah, basically. The, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, so like, yeah, we can say what we want about like the Cold War politics that came out of, but there is precedent for meeting a demand is why we brought it in. Um, so we need to do that. Um, I think I'm remembering a movie where, you know, like, cause I guess rocketeering was, was a huge, um, mm-hmm. skill that was needed. And so there was a lot of like high school competitions and things like that. Yeah, I and mean, obviously yeah. this was a much larger program, but you know, in massive, I think that's October sky. Is that what that is? October yeah. It might be, yeah. yeah. But like it, it was just a, first. a massive investment in education and, and yes. science and, and technology and engineering. Yeah. Yeah. So there'll be some of that. I mean, look, like one of the things that's going on in the nuclear industry right now is that the way that the subsidy incentives works out, it is better. F- your nuclear assets are worth more to you dead than sold hmm. because you don't want them competing with you. And you want to hoover up all of the subsidies you can for. And this is because the utilities own nuclear, but they also own coal and gas and everything else. Is that right? Yeah. 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 Exactly. So you'd have to say like, "This is ours now." (laughs) You know, uh, this is too important. Um, You know, I'm not necessarily sure about all the legal stuff uh, to get around that, but that's something that would just have to be done Mm -hmm. um, by hook or by crook, I guess. Um, so those are the two things that we're looking at for it, in addition to agreeing on a single reactor type. Now, if we want to have a discussion about like what makes that possible in like a partisan way, uh, there's an important discussion to be had there. Because I think that it will require, I don't just think this, I believe that it will require broad consensus across both parties. 
And I think this sort of incipient, like American affairs, American compass, right. And hopefully whatever socialists provided, we can pull their heads out of their asses about this. Um, left that's interested in public interest stuff uh, could come together on this over time because you need it because it takes so long to do it first. So that's part of it too. There has to be working across the aisle to get this done. And there has to be a new centrism that would involve those two camps. On this fight. issue. Yeah, they will fight, they will bicker in all the ways that our centrists do now. But they will at least be interested in something like this together. Brief side note, Emmett, what's your take on why the right likes nuclear? Because, you know, <laughs> I think as someone coming from the left, I'm like, I know all the reasons why the left should like nuclear, <laughs> especially yeah. especially after having talked to Mirta Tripathi and explored the French example, social solidarity, you know, this, this centralized, publicly controlled source of energy that is distributed equitably and affordably. But why on earth, in your opinion, does the right like nuclear energy? That's a great question. Um, I know that they like nuclear energy because I had a lot of MAGA and QAnon people who were big fans of the nuclear New Deal piece, and it got a favorable retweet from Ann Coulter, of all people. Oh, fuck. Um, which I thought was great. Uh, yeah. I was like, awesome. You know, yeah. Uh, yeah. I want buy-in from as many people as possible. Okay. You know, uh, so that didn't bother me. But um, that's not like an endorsement of those perspectives. But that's what I'm saying. We need yeah. to collaborate to get this done. <clears throat> so why so does I Ann think, Coulter like it? Yeah, so I think part of it is just like, I think a lot of them don't necessarily have the romantic reactionary new left element. I don't know if they've ever bought that. I think they've always been too tied to industry. Mm-hmm. You know, I think part of it's just owning the libs. You know, it's like you guys say you love the environment, but you hate nuclear. So haha, we don't have to take you seriously. I think that's part of it. Um, and I think that, uh, I, I mean, I just think that it's ended up that way because of those two reasons. The, the, only, the only thing I've heard is um, sort of from an energy security perspective, um, and this kind of feeds into Meredith Angwin's shorting the grid analyses, right? But that, you know, if say we go all in on natural gas, you know, we're depending on these pipelines, which are, you know, for them to you know they're they're minute to minute things you don't store fuel on site right yeah and so having a grid that's based on one resource or like like meredith is talking about you know just gas and wind and solar is is recipe for disastrously unstable grid with with no fuel storage no ability to sort of deal with these um, unexpected events and so that's Mm. that is what i've heard is potentially why the right buys into nuclear more is is from that perspective of needing a variety of sources um to to you know create a sort of energy sovereignty energy stability but that's also a reason why they're not going to be interested in you know a robust nuclear build out a decarbonization strategy right. or yeah, or building sort of it up beyond fossil yeah 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 i think that's right um i think yeah that's a i think that's fundamentally correct i mean that's the difficult position that we're in right uh the people that should like it uh don't and uh, the people of the ideological commitments that make it impossible to actually enact it are in favor of it. Right, right. You know, like, what are you going to do with that? I mean, I do think, I do hope that there are some shifts coming. Um, and you can kind of feel them now. And I don't know what that's going to look like. But I do think that COVID was a huge wake up call for a yeah. lot of people. Uh, perhaps not those in the halls of power, but uh, people on the ground that we're in, I would describe America as an undeveloping country. <laughs> or a country undergoing undevelopment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it was once developed and now it's losing that. And yeah. um, I think that was a really rude awakening in a way that it accelerated all sorts of previous trends. Yeah. And I think that that is going to create a renewed interest. I hope in public interest. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to say on a, on a, on a more kind of personal level in terms of my social networks, um, I've seen a lot of people um, probably partially through my incessant posting um, who have come from being, you know, pretty, not, not like, um, what am I trying to say? Fundamentalistically anti-nuclear, but, you know, definitely tribally anti-nuclear who are now fence sitters who say they don't have strong feelings one or the other. And I know that, you know, 
in a few more years, I'm going to be able to get them off the fence and over into our side. So it's, it is, um, I, I do see that there are, there are, um, positive outcomes to, to kind of get, getting the message across, communicating it well, shout outs to Isodope and Isabel Bomiki. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that I think, I think we're going to win eventually, Emmett. Yeah, I mean, I have to believe that to do this, right? Yeah. Like, you know, I can have my fatalistic approach that I think it's regardless of whether, like, whether or not we win, this is the thing to do. Yeah. And I believe that. Yeah. Um, but in order to sustain that, <laughs> I have to also <laughs> hedge a little bit, you know, that it will actually work out. Yeah, you know, these and, are dark. These are dark days, and I think especially with the, um, you know, the meta layer of climate change lingering over COVID and lingering over, you know, the rest of our our issues. Um, they do feel like incredibly dark times, but I, I was just trying to time travel myself back into the, you know, late thirties in Germany or something, or, or the, you know, mid war and just imagining how bleak, you know, mm-hmm. humanity, how bleak history looked at that point. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and I, and I got to admit, like, I'm a bruiser, man. I love a good scrap. Like, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm here for it. <laughs> you know, um, I've always been that way. So, yeah. you know, there's there's a fight to be had and I want to have it and I want to win it, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And you want to bet on the underdog because it's more exciting. That certainly is, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Emmett, I think, uh, I think we'll leave it there. Um, it's been really, really fun having you on the show. Yeah. Thank you for having me. This is great. I'll make up an excuse to try and get you back at some point. I'd and love uh, everybody should definitely um, check out the article that we mentioned. Um, it is in the bellows. Uh, which I, is that just an online publication or yeah. a magazine or mm-hmm. yeah again totally it's independently funded yep amazing yeah i saw some other great articles on there as well but the article we were talking about was we need a nuclear new deal not a green new deal we've been talking with emmett penny but big shout outs to the co-author adrian calderon um and uh just a final chance for you emmett to pump your podcast do you want to just give us another quick rundown yeah so um exhaust is my podcast with my friend of of 10 years john and one of the questions that we've been really bothered by for the past while is why nothing feels possible that doesn't mean that nothing is possible um and so we decided to have a podcast that would try to figure out just that and we would try to find uh, moments in history that have been forgotten or to trace trends that have been left out of the mainstream narrative of how we got to where we are and take a look at them. So sometimes we interview scholars, sometimes we do our own investigations. I think next year we have, we're going to have a look at the rise of Japanese manufacturing um, and a rise of the South Korean industrial state. And those will both be multi-part series. But for right now, um, we're taking a look at Christopher Lash's book, The Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy. So, Wow. Alrighty. I'm, I'm, I'm going to check it out for sure. Uh, I've become very interested in industrial policy. It's one of these many myriad interests that are kind of spinning off from my, uh, my new obsessions in this field. So uh, definitely I'll check that out, Emmett. Um, again, thanks again for being on the show and uh, we'll be in touch. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. Thank you, Chris. If you enjoyed the podcast, please make sure to subscribe, like, and review us on your podcast platform of choice. Until next time, guys.